I've spent quite a lot of time over the last few years looking at how you can use virtualization such that when you click to open an email attachment or something like that, you create a virtual machine, you perform that operation within the virtual machine. That virtual machine is going to have access to just the resources that are needed for that task and no more. And it's going to exist just for the life of that task. And then when that task finishes, we're going to dispose of it. These days, there are endpoints for devices all over the place. Trying to constantly detect security threats seems like a losing strategy. It's like running a race, but always being behind despite best efforts. If detection ends up being a losing strategy, then what's a winning one? Dr. Ian Pratt, the global head of security for personal systems at HP, explains how virtual machines can mitigate threats. Enjoy this episode. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. For anyone who doesn't know what HP is, which I don't think there is, but just in case, if you could, please let our audience know what is HP and specifically what is your role at HP? So HP has obviously been around a long time as one of the real founders of, uh, of Silicon Valley, starting out in the garage. And uh, you know, today, obviously, we make um, a lot of endpoint devices, uh, you know, desktops, laptops, printers, things like that. And my role at HP is as Global Head of Security for Personal Systems. So I'm responsible for the, uh, the security of the, the products that were built, both the, uh, the hardware and then the, the software and services that we provide on top of that. Ian, we see that you do do a lot of publications. You speak on behalf of HP, uh, specifically about what's going on, especially with the modern workforce, how hybrid work is here. There's more endpoint devices everywhere. You kind of hit it right before in your intro. HP makes not only the computers, but the printers and other devices. And many, many people are having more and more devices, connected devices at different endpoints, different places, offices, home offices, shared offices, corporate, on-prem. What is happening in your world right now that's, that you have to address this challenge? Because obviously we understand there's multiplication of devices, but give us an idea of how fast things are changing in your world and what's, what's the major challenge of securing all these devices. Well, obviously, over the you know, last couple of years, what we've seen happen is uh, people you know, take their devices, which were sitting on corporate networks, and we're getting the benefit of the protections provided by those networks, pick them up, and then, then take them home and, uh, and work from home. And for many companies, that's obviously been a big challenge, those that weren't prepared for it. But in, in many ways, it's, uh, it's not much different from what was happening to support remote workers, traveling workers, and, uh, and things like that before. And so what we've really seen over the last couple of years, and there's an acceleration of various trends which were already happening, um, but now they're very much mainstream. And in this world where endpoints are out of the, the office, we, we really need them to be more autonomous, to be able to defend themselves, to uh, not rely on those devices on the, uh, on the enterprise network. And we also need them to be resilient so that if, if something does go wrong, you know, we can always get that device back to a, a known good state to get the user back up and running again quickly and be able to do that without, you know, having to send the machine off or, uh, you know, help desk visits or anything like that. It all has to be able to be done remotely and, uh, and, and quickly. So those have been, been some of the challenges. But also, you know, obviously the, 
the bad guys have taken advantage of the situation. Um, you know, there are a lot more attacks happening year on year. That's something with trends we've been seeing for years, and the level of sophistication of those yeah. attacks goes up as well. So it is a cha- challenging time for everybody in, uh, in in security. And I think the you know the endpoint in particular, if you look at the stats of of how enterprise breaches happen, how they get started, you know, and over 70% of them, in fact, uh, I, I saw a survey recently from Veritas saying it was, it was 91%, but in many breaches, the point of entry is an endpoint. It's some, you know, poor user, you know, clicking on something, effectively inviting the attackers onto their device. And then that's yeah. the beachhead that the attackers use to move around the, uh, the enterprise. And that's why enterprise or oh, endpoint security is so important for enterprise security. Yeah, that makes total sense. We've had a couple guests that have been on the, our show talking on this subject, talk about how what you just described, which is the endpoint is actually the weakest link. It used to be because everyone was on a secure network, you had to break into the network, you had to break into the servers, and then you could infiltrate that way. Now people are figuring out new ways to come in through the endpoints. You made a comment earlier in that in the conversation about how you're looking the future you think is going to be more resilience at the device, software enabled, being able to recognize, it sounds like recognize attacks potentially. Give us an idea of how how fast that's shifting because I remember, of course, not too long ago having to work in an office like many others where you know you had to sign on, you had to be on that closed encrypted network. Like when you took your device off network, it didn't really work that great. Um, and then most people didn't they didn't mix. They also didn't mix their personal and their work computer. They kind of had two, right? You worked on your office machine and you worked at home on your home machine. But that's really blending now uh, when, you know, my wife, for example, she works at Cisco. She got issued all this equipment and stuff like that. Of course, they don't change our router. They don't change our, they don't give us a firewall. They don't give us those things. And she's using public internet to work at Cisco. Um, give us an idea of what that means and how fast the technology has to evolve. What's the difference in the technology that has to go into the machine to, to protect it in this manner? Yeah, well, if you, if you think about it, working you know, from home with your uh, enterprise corporate device on your home network really wasn't much different from the, the traveling worker that happened to be staying in a, in a hotel, perhaps in a foreign country, you know, having to use the, uh, the hotel Wi-Fi and things like that. So you know, a lot of the solutions to these these problems have been known about for a while. It's really the fact that everybody is doing it now, that it's now the, the normal way of approaching things. And it really should be the case that the security of your device shouldn't be dependent on the security of the network it's connected to. You know, we, we want the devices to be autonomous, able to defend themselves. And so, you know, if there was a problem on the home network, you know, it shouldn't be, uh, be an issue if, uh, if we've got things set up correctly. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And for yourself, how do you see it? Like, I guess, what keeps you up at night? What do you see the biggest needs for innovation in home security or endpoint security needing to be? Because you mentioned earlier also that attacks are getting more sophisticated too. Where are you seeing the biggest needs for innovation, development, investment in the short term, as well as the next five years? So one of the things is, is that the, the, the way that attackers are trying to get in you know, at a high level, hasn't really changed for quite a while because it's it's targeting the endpoint, it's targeting that intersection of fallible humans and vulnerable technology. And, you know, still the most common ways is, you know, sending somebody an email, getting them to click on something, um, you know, clicking on mm. attachment, clicking on a link in email, or, or perhaps download something from the web. 
you know, the actual uh, vulnerability that they may be exploiting is is changing all of the time. But the the general approach of of social engineering someone to someone to click to invite them onto their machine to then exploit vulnerabilities and, and the ways that they do that really haven't changed. And you know, that's a you know, obviously there there are a lot of different approaches which uh, organizations are, are trying to you know to try and prevent that from compromising their machines. The first line of defense is obviously, you know, user training, encouraging people to look at things before they click. But we know that as the sophistication of attacks goes up, you know, the lures for pe- encouraging people to click get more and more convincing. And uh, and so we've actually seen click rates go up over the, the last year or two because the lures have got better. Some of that is actually being done by attackers using um, you know, machine learning, machine generation technologies to uh, to create convincing lures. You know, based out of uh, you know having compromised one machine, they'll look through the inbox of the user, find out how they're communicating with. In some cases, even search the directory to figure out you know what roles those organ those users have in the organization, or perhaps in different companies, and then reply to existing email threads. So very difficult for anybody to you know, in fact, impossible to know that that's not a, a, a legitimate. Uh, you know, email. It might be an existing document that uh, um, has been you know, attached, had malware added to it, and then attached to that thread. And because people are clicking, you're then reliant on the the security tools that you uh, that you have on the machine. If it's uh, you know got via you know through the email gateway, that email's got to the machine. The users then uh, then clicked on some attachment, and. You know the challenge there is is that uh, again because the attackers are well organized they uh, you know they have access to all of the various security products and tools and just view it as part of the QA process for their malware to mm. run it through the lab make sure it gets a clean bill of health so they can have that confidence that in the first few hours perhaps days or sometimes even weeks when they release some fresh piece of malware it's not going to be spotted by detection based approaches to security you know even ones using sophisticated machine learning, because they're, in some cases, using machine generation tricks on the other side to generate those pieces of malware specifically to avoid the machine learning. So it's a real arms race that's taking place, fueled by the very large amounts of money that the bad guys are making. That's why the the sophistication has gone up, because there's a lot of money to be made. And uh, they're organized. There's you You have these criminal supply chains, these organizations that work together to improve the, the quality of, uh, of attacks that we're seeing. That's kind of scary hearing that, obviously, because you are correct. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Uh, you can't, one, if something slips through the gates and someone clicks it and installs the software or the malware, it is going to start beginning. You are reliant on software to recognize these things, and they themselves are also trying to combat that. How do you envision this battle playing out? Is it going to constantly be this race of like reaction? Do we get to a place where software gets so smart that it can actually recognize that this is a potential piece of malware? Because I, I saw this thing that you wrote uh, about how like something like 29% of malware captured right now is previously unknown. So, you know, obviously a developer can't program a resistance to something it doesn't recognize. Do you see like AI or possibly something being a part of the solution where it can recognize that this is malware or a virus or something uh, nefarious? Well, people have been using machine learning techniques for a long time. You know, every even the uh, you know so-called legacy AV vendors are all using machine learning in their products. There's uh, you know it, it's, it's approach which everyone 
has to use to uh, because signatures and, and hashes and things like that are, have, have long since stopped being effective. But you know that certainly helps. It gives you the ability to to do a sort of fuzzy match against uh, you know against something suspicious, trying to trying to identify it as malware. But you know those these approaches are not are never going to get you to a hundred percent. In fact, they're they're barely getting us to ninety percent, mm. and certainly ineffective for anything which is fresh, not necessarily sophisticated, just fresh malware, which has been tweaked sufficiently and tested so that you know it's going to evade detection. And I think that's a key thing. If we're always taking a a, a detection-based approach, trying to spot things that are bad, they're always kind of going to be behind the game yeah. because you know it, it's just a case of how quickly you can catch up and, you know, update your uh, your your model of what is bad to then be able to to block it. So I think the the interesting approaches going forwards are the ones where you know we're dealing with classes of attack where you're not worrying about individual vulnerabilities. You're saying we're going to deal with this, you know, this class attack whether it's uh, you know attachments coming in via email or uh, you know web risks of web browsing etc and then Really using a, a different approach that that doesn't rely on detection, whether that's detection at the time the attack happens, sort of the the traditional AV or NGAV approach, or even if you're relying on post breach detection, whether it's you know EDR or MDR techniques of trying to to spot that something bad has happened after the fact, you're always going to be behind. So I think approaches where you can mitigate the threat, and that's an area where. Yeah, you know, we have a lot of focus of looking at how we can can make it such that you're rendering the malware harmless. Mm. You're know, stopping its ability to uh, to hurt you. You're not relying on having to detect it. You're containing the threat, and uh, and I think approaches like that, um, and then you know, using sort of isolation to, to stop that movement, to to stop so you, the, so that you can control what you're putting at risk. So that you can stop attacks from spreading, these are going to be the approaches that uh, that, that end up winning out. I think. Give our audience an example of how this could potentially work, uh, because we kind of get you know I think we a lot of us when you say detection that makes sense, but like it sounds like you're talking about systemic design almost that prevents malware from spreading. That's what I, when I when I hear you, I, I think of like engineering how. Uh, you know, boats are engineered that if one side's compromised, that the whole boat doesn't sink, right? It's like try to isolate the damage to one area. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Um, I'd love for you to further explain this this concept of isolation or preventing uh, malware to actually take down a whole system, even if it gets through. Sure. So, you know, there have been a set of design principles which have been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, the ideas around, uh, you know, reducing attack surface, you know, mandatory access controls, you know, strong fine-grained isolation, um, strong identity of user and, uh, and devices, and, and critically least privileged. These are, these are ideas that have been around for a long time, being used to build really security-critical systems and been, been proven to show the test of time. And, you know, collectively, the term zero trust has emerged over the last few years to, to refer to some of these ideas. Oh, we yeah. see zero trust applied to, to networking where... You know, rather than just having the the uh, concept of uh, you know a device being connected to a corporate network, you're actually looking at it on a far more fine grained basis about you know 
which service is being accessed right now? You know, can we identify the user? Can we identify the uh, the device? And then limiting it just to that. That's the the implementation of least privilege. But you can also apply those same principles to the endpoint itself. And you know, so for example, you know, one of the things which uh, I, you know, I've spent spent quite a lot of time over the last few years looking at is looking at how you can use virtualization such that mm. you know when you click to to open an email attachment or something like that you create a virtual machine you perform that operation within the virtual machine and it's it's transparent from an end user point of view but that virtual machine is going to have access to just the resources that are needed for that task and no more you won't have access to any of your other documents or credentials password hashes etc and it's going to exist just for the life of that task. And then when that task finishes, we're going to dispose of it. And, uh, you know, hence discarding anything bad that's happened within that, uh, that virtual machine. So if you, if you think about that, that means that when you, you click to open that email attachment, you're not putting anything at risk. There's yeah. nothing to steal. There's no way for the attacker to move laterally. And then there's no way for the attacker to persist because as soon as I close the document, the uh, the VM is disposed of, and so through that kind of approach, you are able to deal with with whole classes of, of malware that happen to be coming in via via that vector. You're not having to uh, to worry about individual vulnerabilities or uh, you know making sure that you're you're, you're patched for them even, or uh, or even worrying about detecting particular threats. They're going to be contained regardless, and you can do that without really changing the user experience. It should be transparent to the end user. Okay, so this idea that when I open an email, for example, that I would spin up a virtual machine, it's, I mean, it's very foreign to me because I've not heard of this possible solution. Is this a common practice or is this something that's still is going to take a little bit of a lot of time and infrastructure development for that's a common practice that companies take or companies utilize? Yeah, I would say it's a common practice today, but it's certainly a growing practice. I mean, we, I, I started, uh, you know, or co founded a company. A few years ago, to uh, uh, you know, to work, develop some of this technology, and uh, that company was acquired by uh, by HP, um, mm -hmm. and I've been at HP for a number of years now. And one of the key things which we wanted to do was to to bring that technology to the mainstream. You know, beforehand, most of our customers were uh, you know government, intelligence community, aerospace, defense. But now, since we've been at HP, we've been able to. Um, you know, to offer it to uh, to small businesses, you know, mid-size as well as enterprise, and now have many millions of users, you know, using the software every day. And they've, you know, in the course of their of using their machines, opened, you know, over I think it's over ten billion now. It's rather more than that now. Various documents and web pages and other things which were you know were risking activities, and they've opened in VMs and they've been protected. And, and during that whole time. We've had zero reported breaches of uh, uh, of anything escaping from one of those containers and being able to uh, to harm the machine. So it's a, it's an approach which gets you to a, a radically better security posture than you could do through just detection alone. Yeah. How far away do you see more mainstream adoption? Is this something that we're going to see, like for example, to personal computers? You think in the next ten years? Because this. I mean, it makes total sense. You're opening attachments or things that you're not familiar with, your systems aren't familiar with in complete VMs. It's completely detached from your computer. Even, I mean, I can see how this works for just me personally, right? Like if I had access to this, I would want that because it makes it simple because there's, think of how many emails we as people get every day from different vendors, different things, you know, 
we just don't know. We we really don't know what 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 it is. Especially if it's like a first time going to a business, you see a transactional email, you just assume we assume that it's fine. But we don't really know how far away is having virtual virtualized machines for everybody to open up in email systems. How far away are we from that? So you know, it's certainly a, a something that we provide with uh, with all of our commercial machines today. Um, right. You know, a basic version, and then have more sort of a pro version for SMB and an enterprise version for, uh, for for larger organizations. But you know, you can just download a you know a single copy, you know, buy a single copy from the web. And I know for a fact that it's a lot of consumers that are buying uh, buying that, even though you know it's the the, the pro version. You know, it certainly is getting uh, getting used in the consumer space. I think I actually think the majority of, uh, of of customers maybe at least by you know, number of customers as opposed to number of devices. But in terms of actually becoming you know pervasive in the consumer realm, well, you know, I could I could see that happening over time. It's uh, there's always a trickle down sure. of technologies in security. It starts starts with the people that have the biggest problem, which is always you know, government aerospace <laughs> defense, and then you know, trickles down to finance, mainstream enterprise, SMB, and then then consumer. That's the way these things always flow. Yeah, I agree. It's going to take a while for it to come down to consumer. It makes total sense. Where Whoever has the most risk is the first and quickest adopters. For yourself, when you think about the, your career spanning cybersecurity, you know, this is one of the things we always want to know about our guests as well. Have you always been interested in cybersecurity specifically, or did your original technical career take you on another path? You know, so I've always been interested in in system software and hardware. You know, ever ever since I was a kid, and uh, you know, my my career started as an academic. Um, I was uh, at the University of Cambridge, running the you know run systems research group there for a number of years, and but I've always sort of liked being able to to build. You know, create new technology and then try and get it, get people using it, and that's really been how my uh, my career has uh, has played out. With a, you know, I guess you know, Bremen was my fourth startup company that uh, that I'd had. So, you know, I've built a lot of systems over over time where it turned out that security was was critical to the uh, uh, critical to the important you know, to the system being useful, and. Uh, so now, for a lot of my career, it's really been looking at how how can we build systems that uh, that stand the test of time, that can really be difficult to be hacked. And there's a lot of uh, lot we've learned along the way as to how to do that, how to you know what techniques work, don't work, and uh, you know how you uh, how you go about architecting things to try and make them as secure as possible from the beginning. What about when you were younger, before you got to school, before you got to Cambridge? Were you always into systems then, or was it something that you learned while you were in college? Yeah, I mean, I always, uh, you know, like taking things apart and learning how they work. And uh, you know, as soon as I got my hands on a on a computer, I was interested in 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 how it worked, what the split was between the hardware and the software, and uh, you know, and I think that's where there's a lot of interesting things that you can do on that hardware software divide, and that's mm-hmm. that's really. Uh, where I think there's a lot of opportunity going forwards to to do more hardware helping secure the rest of the uh, of the software stack. We're already seeing it in a number of areas. Um, it's actually something I spent you know a lot of time you know, thinking about. If uh, you know one of the things I I worked on at the university was uh, a system called Xeno Servers um, uh, that, that with a number of students we built and. It's regarded as being the first infrastructure as a service cloud, and a key part of that was the Zen hypervisor. And uh, obviously, Zen is the 
uh, is used as the core of Amazon AWS and uh, mm -hmm. you know and other public clouds. And you know we knew from the beginning that security was essential to that. You know we wanted to be able to have uh, paying customers and for them to uh, you know for the you know sensitive data to be safe. And we knew that not all of our customers were going to be you know fine upstanding citizens. Some of them were going to be nefarious <laughs> trying to uh, uh, you know break into the system. So you know. Security is always absolutely key to the design of what we're doing there, and then went on to, to build other systems that are used for storing some of the, you know, the, well, the most sensitive data held by you know governments and intelligence communities. And it's, you know, for those kind of systems where huge amounts of money being spent pen testing them, uh, and you know that uh, you really need to uh, to think about how to build security into into the architecture to, uh, you know, to make sure that. Uh, You've got these multiple layers, and that it's a it's a really architecturally robust approach. No, that makes total sense. And you you know you're talking about endpoint endpoint devices, and we know about HP uh, Wolf Security, which secures endpoint solutions. You mentioned printers earlier in your conversation, and one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about this hardware side of things is that we've had on our show different people in cybersecurity talk about how. A lot of investment, of course, is made on the computer systems, but the reality is more and more devices rely on the internet as well, internet-connected devices. We heard a horror story from Darktrace about someone's literal uh, fish tank filter that was connected was actually able to, they were able to drop something in there at a casino and capture the data of high rollers at a casino. And I was like, oh man, there's so many things to think about now because so many devices are connected. You're probably seeing similar things. How does your team approach it? How do you guys think about it? Because every device you ship that's connected to the internet obviously could be a potential vulnerability. And you were talking about just a moment ago like how the hardware and the software have to come together in order to make these systems endpoints as secure as possible. How do you guys approach, how do you approach it? Do you treat every machine like the same or is a computer one thing and a, and a printer is another? How do you guys come about, how do you guys approach uh, securing all these other endpoints? Yeah, well, I think there's a, a, a trickle down if you like from you know from PCs to you know to printers to other you know IoT devices where you know for example in our PCs uh, you know the for about eight years now we've had some some custom silicon which was created something called the endpoint security controller which you're now seeing similar concepts show up in mobile phones and things like that but in the PC world it's uh, it's still unique and that can really be the you know the hardware root of trust. And uh, you can then build everything off that, and having this sort of dedicated piece of hardware that uh, you know you can you can rely on and use it to, to monitor other parts of the system and be able to repair them. And and that's kind of critical in this, and that you you know you need to be able to uh, to update the complex firmware that runs on these systems. You know, something like a, a printer is doing a lot of very complex stuff. You're mm -hmm. uh, you're going to need to continually update that. Be able to do that in a secure fashion. Know that you're always going from official versions of the next official version. That um, you know that it hasn't been tampered with. That you can can monitor that and uh, and, and check that every time the uh, the system starts up. And then if you do find anything wrong, be able to get back to a to a known good state. And you know hardware can help with that. And those those same chips now, which started off in PCs. Same custom silicon is uh, is used in the printers too, then you know flow down to other um, IoT devices, perhaps in a simpler form over time. But you know the techniques as to how to do this, uh, do this sort of thing are you know are understood. Mm -hmm. It's 
you know, a lot. The, the trouble in IoT is that a lot of uh, a lot of the rush has been just to to connect things to the internet and make them work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> not enough thought has gone into uh, into how to secure it. And you know, we're now seeing the you know the next wave of that where people are taking this stuff more seriously. But there's a lot of old devices out there that are going to be a problem. Yeah, we totally agree with that. I got to ask. This is a question separate from work. Do you personally have a lot of IoT devices? I do. Um, got a bunch of things around the home, but um, you know, I also uh, segment them off onto a different, uh, you know, virtual network. You know, <laughs> a different VLAN. So, uh, you know, they're not sharing the network with anything that I actually uh, actually care about. And uh, you know, I do pay attention to who I'm buying the device from and whether I think that they have taken security seriously. And I, you know, I probably wouldn't buy a a random thing off, uh, you know. Off eBay or Alibaba and, and plug it into my network. I want to know a bit about it. <laughs> I agree. If you see something on like uh, wish.com that connects to the internet, just be worried. All right. <laughs> Ian, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your experience and your story and some of the things you're working on at HP. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Ian, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work. We kind of already got started, but outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> so give us an idea. What do you like to do for fun? Because security, we've kind of got a stereotype at our, the IT Visionaries audience has a stereotype of security people that they're a little bit worry worts. What do you do for fun to kick back and relax? You definitely have a lot of things you have to think about on a daily basis. And when you don't want to think about those things, what do you do? Um, I actually like learning new physical skills, you know, not uh, not getting great at them, but just being competent at them. So, you know, like in the last year, I've uh, I've, I've tried to learn to surf and, uh, and clay pigeon shoot. And I've just done lots of different things over the years. Hey, I want to let you know I'm a surfer. Hey, listen, the problem with surfing is if you get good at it, you'll stop working. <laughs> <laughs> surfing. Uh, you mentioned shooting clay pigeons. Sounds like you're a bit of an outdoorsman. What are some of the other physical skills you've learned over the years? Oh, I don't know. You know, windsurfing, you know, I'll have a go at anything, you know, trying, you know, kite surfing. I, you know, used to row, you know, trying to learn to fly a, fly a helicopter, you know, just, I just like learning new physical things. It's always good to be learning, right? Absolutely. So when you go on a vacation, I know like lately we haven't been going on vacation, but hopefully this reopens up pretty soon. When you go on vacations, what kind of places do you like to go? Do you like to go to like more natural places or do you like going to uh, visit cities and like whether ancient or modern? Uh, you know, I, these days I want to go somewhere where I can go surfing. So I've got the bug at the moment. So uh, uh, you're there. You're, it's, I mean, it sounds like you're crossing over. <laughs> yeah. Got a lot to learn though. Where did you learn to surf? In the Maldives. Oh, Come on, man. That's beautiful out there. Crystal clear water. <laughs> For If you guys don't know what the Maldives are, go check it out. It's beautiful, beautiful place. Very tropical. Okay. So if you surfed in the Maldives, that means you surfed most likely over reef. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Did you ever, have you ever cut your feet on the reef? <laughs> yeah. Doing the, uh, the starfish when you fall off is, uh, is key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The reef bites. The reef always bites. Uh, for those that are listening only when you fall you stick your arms and legs out like a starfish so you sink as little as possible so that you don't get you know cut up uh, ocean reef is typically very sharp 
Well, Ian, we'll have to get you ripping and uh, take you. Uh, are you a last question? I guess is are you a goofy foot or a natural foot? I'm I'm uh, left foot forward, so uh, regular. Regular foot. Okay, so if you can, so there's two places that have long, long rights. One of my personal favorites is Las Flores in El Salvador. When it's going in the summer, um, you're talking about over maybe 300 meters. It's like it, minutes. You'll be on the way for more than a minute, uh, just going top to bottom. And it's crazy because it's got one of the easiest entries okay. when you go paddle. It looks like it's steep, but it's not. It like just glides you right in. So if you ever can check out Las Flores in El Salvador, I think you'll have a lot of fun given that you're a, you're a regular foot. Okay. Thanks for the tip. Well, Ian, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing what you're up to at HP and how you guys are securing endpoints. And thanks for also sharing a little bit about yourself as a surfer. Listen, that's the biggest challenge. When you get into surfing, you stop working as much. I'm just telling you, you just start chasing waves. <laughs> well, I guess I'm lucky we don't have too many uh, too many beaches too close to Cambridge. So uh, it's, uh, it's a holiday activity. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Your boss can rest confidently. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries.